Welcome to the Now Leading Podcast, hosted by the Northwest District LCMS. We bring a Lutheran point of view to conversations on the art of leading as a follower of Jesus, through valleys, over peaks, and on the waves, following his lead in the great Northwest. Hey, this is Dust Kunkel. You know, anytime we listen to someone else's story, we gain a little bit more wisdom. Because wisdom is really being able to look at something from more than one perspective, um, gaining a new view, a new understanding, a new outlook. And um, that's exactly what I hope you get from this next podcast. As you listen into an interview that I had with Dr. Linda Brecky, the uh, second part of a two-part interview, I hope that you gain new perspective. You know, one last thought, and that's this. Uh, podcasts can't really capture the full weight of the impact of a university that's over 100 years old and its closure. But I hope that in some small way, these two interviews open a window for you and for me and provide the wisdom that we so desperately need so that we can be men and women who understand the times, are wise, and know what to do. So listen in. Well, hi, folks. This is Dust Kunkel with the Now Leading Podcast, and I am sitting here for our second episode with Dr. Linda Barecki from Concordia University, Portland, and we're having this conversation, uh, the second conversation, the same week as uh, the closure of Concordia University, Portland. This is the last week that the school will be open. So welcome, Linda. I'm, I'm really glad you're doing this with me. Thank you, but you can't keep introducing it. This is the last week because I want to well, tell my yeah. funny stories. This, this is the end. <laughs> I need to play the dirge music. Like, uh, <laughs> and that is why that is why you and I are having a conversation because I can count on you to laugh with me too and to tell good stories about really good people. I mean, that's part of the why for me for doing this. Um, but it doesn't take away that this is this is a sad week. So. Um, we are here to uh, talk a little bit more uh, about um, tidal waves. It's a great metaphor um, because it's this picture of something that's so much bigger than us that we don't have control over, and it, it just takes over. And uh, it we deal with trauma as a result, and we find ourselves on the other side of this thing if we survive it, and we have to kind of pick up the pieces. And, and we're right in the middle of that going on right now. Um, I, I'm going to just start out with this question for you actually because um in your in the little cv you sent me um you have this little this great little quote at the bottom of it magna ars est conversare cum deo did i say that right pretty good did you have latin with rhinish or did you <laughs> learn that on your own <laughs> it, it is a great art this conversation with god thomas akempis what why is that at the bottom of that that CV that you sent me. I mean, what's what's the meaning? Kunkel, you lie that? like a rug. You told me I was going to get to tell Paul Lineman stories. <laughs> he asked me this great conversation. Why um, did I put that? <laughs> you are going to get to tell a Paul Lineman story. Absolutely. I would not let that. I would not let our this episode get done without a Paul Lineman story. And folks, that's that'll keep you listening. But <laughs> when t- does the me, Paul Lineman story come? Yeah, yeah exactly. Let's, when will it pop? And what will it will it be? Uh, well, anyway, just magna ars es conversari. Is it conversari? Conversari. Okay. Magna ars es conversari cum 
Deo. Thomas Akempis is a great art, this conversation with God. goes back yeah. to being an ethno-doxology. It is not a science. Worship is not a science. You can't yeah. get all of your doctrinal, liturgical ducks in a row, gather everything together. It's the right liturgy. That's what I went to learn when mm-hmm. I went into my doctoral program. Just tell me I want the right, the pure form before it got distorted. You can't. You can't line everything up, and then you have worship. It is an art. It is not a science. Yeah. Your life is an art. It is not a science. True Truth is a person. It is not a set of propositional truths. And so it is yeah. a great art. It is a great improvisation. And all of life is learning mm. how to hear God, listen to God, and learning better how to ask hard questions of God oh, so that you yeah. can see the answers. The end. That's the answer to your question. Now can we tell <laughs> Paul Lineman's story? Well, no, per- <laughs> this is perfect because you know what? This is we've got to set the tone for this, right, Linda? And and <laughs> You know, life, especially the life of following God, it, it's it's just not um, it's not a factory, right? It's not. We make great Fords and great computers uh, using that. You know, the factory line, run them down the conveyor belt, and something comes out the other end. Approach, but we don't make good, good spiritual people are not made that way, or maybe I should say mature spiritual people, right? Right. You're just sitting there <laughs> Next just question. waiting to tell your Paul Lindemann story. This is this whole thing is all about so for those of you that don't know, so uh Linda, you are a classmate of Paul's. And um for those of you who are listening to this and have no clue, Paul is um, my supervisor, he's the president of the Northwest District for the LCMS. So I've I've had the honor of getting to work with him for the last uh ten years or so. And um Linda went to school with him when you were uh, y'all were much younger. So uh, at Concordia University in Portland, this is a conversation. This podcast is a conversation about students at Concordia University Portland and about their instructors. That's really what this is about because you are finishing out as an instructor at Concordia Portland. So, are you going to tell this story now? I have, yeah, and I'm going to sneak in as many stories as I can uh, under the guise uh, of one story, uh, which is I have here the commencement program, and uh, there were 48 graduates in 1980, first class. Okay. And um, who do you suppose won the leadership award? Hmm. And this is not the quiz I'm going to ask you later, but who do you suppose, okay. of all the people you know that I named? Well, I was not know? there. I was seven at the time. <laughs> <laughs> Living in Africa. <laughs> yes. So you would think that Paul leaders Paul Lineman would have won the leadership award because we all knew that he was destined for greatness. We all knew that. And it was so funny. He's so stable. He's so, you know, centered, even when he's 20 years old. There's pictures in the catalog. Guess who he's sitting next to? Cindy Lale. Stable life. He's got his life figured out. He knows who he's going to spend his life with. He's he's this way, straight as an arrow. Okay, who won the leadership award? It was not Paul Inman. Yeah. It was me and Joe Barecki. And you know why? Because we did the most stuff. Because I had a childhood where I never got to do stuff. So I wasn't discerning. I did everything. So Mm -hmm. I was in the dramas with Sid. Johnson, we did Twelfth Night. I was in everything. I was in yeah. handbells. I was in choir. So if you did the most stuff, you won the leadership award, and Paul yeah. did not. Okay, so that's so not the story. Though. So you were the busiest. <laughs> I was the busiest. They don't even have that award anymore. It's morphed onto something else. 
Um, here's a speech class, 1979. We are not going to name the professor because it was one of the few that kind of came and went, not well beloved. And mm -hmm. uh, Paul Linneman will know who this professor is that I have, which <laughs> I speak. So we were in uh, this class, and you had to give a persuasion speech. And uh, I did mine on the Simpson system of aggression release, which tells you there's that critical spirit there. <laughs> so it was all made up. It was about how you should uh, punch your stuffed animals when you get back to your dorm. Paul Linneman is in oh the gosh. library for weeks in preparation. There's, you had to give like three speeches. He's there. <laughs> he did something on the oil embargo, you know, in the 70s, Saudi Arabia, how it's not morally good that we should be so dependent on, blah, 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 blah. And uh, oh, this is good. This is really we good. Both got A's. So I spent <laughs> almost a solid 15 minutes online. He spent weeks getting all this detail and all this stuff. Yeah. Okay, but this is my favorite story. In that same speech class, February 1979, there was a total eclipse of the sun in the Pacific Northwest. And this really? teacher, who was not so beloved, had determined that we were going to have class anyway at 8 o'clock in the morning. Oh my and also, that's not fair, right? Because yeah. we're, we're big on that. We're Lutherans. That's not fair. It's not right. It's not. It's, it's not good, right? Yeah. Nor is it salutary. <laughs> Me, right? Nor salutary. <laughs> so we all complained, but we were kinder, gentler back then. We didn't pick it. We didn't call up the Willamette Week and <laughs> spill our yeah, guts. <laughs> there was no Willamette Week. So then, you know, there's all this murmuring in class. Are we going to go to class? <laughs> Heck, no, we're not going to go to class. But everybody wanted to know if Paul Lineman was going to go to class because he was going to do something where we'd be graded. <laughs> I, he, I don't know why he would do this, although Hans Schwalterholz did the same thing once during uh, a snowstorm right before Thanksgiving. But that's a different story. So um, what do you think? Did Paul Lineman go to class oh, or did he cut class with the rest of us? Because you and can just totally see. <laughs> you're putting me on the record here. So the, I, there's no way that I can say yes or no to this question because that would, I just can't go on the record. I'm going to have to plead the fifth and just have you <laughs> need to answer it. What did, what did Paul, young Paul Linneman do? Of course he found the deeper truth, the deeper consistency <laughs> of the importance of life. <laughs> he was out there on the athletic field with the rest of us on a cloudy day, looking up at the sky as it gets okay. all dark. <laughs> we all cut class. And the professor was there by himself. Not a single soul went to class that day. And I just I just remember because everybody wondered, do you think Paul is going to cut class? Yeah. Oh, I think he'll probably go. No, he cut class with the rest of us. Wow. Um, we need to do more of this. I, I have a feeling you've got other stories, too. I have a million of them. Ole Nordling, who is one of the most famous grads, he just won a few years ago. He won the Lifetime Achievement, whatever mm. it was, when Concordia was still doing that, because he gave a lot of money. He became a Navy SEAL. He became a brain surgeon. He's down in Southern California. All the Nordlings, they're all famous. Mm -hmm. Ole Nordling used to roll out of bed at 8.25 because they stopped serving breakfast at 8.30. And he would get out of Centennial Hall and walk down the sidewalk to Mary Neal's, not Mary Neal's, to the uh, guild. Uh, what was it called back then? The cafeteria. Anyway, to the cafeteria mm -hmm. in his bathrobe and slippers. Oh, and yeah. He, There's always a few of those. Yeah. Tall, tall basketball player, just yeah. with his hair all tousled, rubbing the sleep out of his eyes. Um, I remember when Julie Rowland got introduced to us 
students. Hmm. She was barely older than we were, and she taught there. Dust. You've got interview her sometime. Yeah. I remember the assembly where she was introduced as the new. Um, thought she was teaching math. Not yeah, sure. Yeah. Can't remember. But she was. Uh, she was a teacher, and she was going to be a coach. Hmm. Yeah. I can still remember her standing there. She looked so young. She was so young. Um, and so were you back then. Yeah, I'm still young. All you guys have gotten old. You know, Food. Joel Schulteis in his last lecture, which everyone should listen to, the last lecture, Joel Schulteis, Concordia. Yeah. Uh, he talked about the farmers who brought food. And so we would eat the, the same thing every day for two weeks. And yep. one time the farmers brought rhubarb, and we had rhubarb cobbler for two weeks solid. Yeah, from South Maybe Idaho. I've heard many stories about that. They would just they'd load up trucks and bring food over. Yes, so, and Juanita Walmart was the head cook and she cooked up all this food for us. That's what we ate. It was not Sodexo. It was real she food. Was there in the, she was there in the early 90s when I was there and it, there was this thing called Juanita's Surprise, which no one wanted to eat, but I'm not <laughs> going to say more about that. Listen, speaking <laughs> of which, you've got, you, you're finishing out this week with uh, your, your last group of Concordia University students in, in yep. classes. And, um, you asked their permission uh, to share some some of the stuff they've written about in their papers. We're going to get to that in a little bit. So you've got their written permission uh, to be sharing some of this stuff, some of the their thoughts. Um, but sort of to introduce or to to draw us into that time, I'm going to tell a story of my own time at Concordia Please University. Do. I, we were talking about this before we before I hit record, but I grew up in West Africa, came back to the United States, and ended up at Concordia University. Um, the the fall of 1992 and my folks were still in West Africa and so I had an old uh, 1968 Mercury Cougar looked really cool but it was a piece of junk and I drove myself from Montana all the way to school at Concordia University and I still you know there are these moments that you remember I'm sure anyone listening has these moments too that are connected to these significant moments in your life when you went through one big one big transition and went into another phase or era of your life right and going to college is typically one of those and so I, I was young enough to at that time I was doing my own thing and I drove myself there by myself and and um, pulled up to Concordia University Portland to the parking lot and I was fine everything was good truly seriously good until I got out of the car <laughs> and started to unload my stuff out of this, out of my 1968 Mercury Cougar that looked great, but was a piece of junk. And I looked around and everybody had parents with them except me. So parents were helping kids move into dorms and brothers and sisters were helping their siblings move into dorms. And, and I grabbed some stuff and I walked up the stairs, Centennial stairs by myself. And it was that moment that I realized that I was there by myself. And it was a big moment in my life. I still remember it. Um, and I turned a corner and ran into two of the guys that are still my best friends to this day. Steven, oh, Smith, no. and, Steven Smith and Nathan Schmidt. And um, we ended up becoming roommates. It's a much longer story than I can share here on this podcast. But um, the flip that happened between feeling completely alone and suddenly realizing that this was a moment that I didn't really understand until I got into it, 
and that I really wanted my parents there and I wanted family and friends and I had none to being gift wrapped a couple of at the time they were insane. They're still kind of insane, but at the time they were really they were we were very weird back then. But I had friends and I was so thankful for it. And it happened almost immediately. Um, students every year go to universities, go to places of higher learning, looking for some for one thing, and they end up getting something else, right? Um, they they end up showing up with all kinds of stuff that they're carrying, just like I was. Walk up the stairs at Centennial and um, receive something else. And sometimes uh, that's not great, like being told that your university is closing. <laughs> um, and, and sometimes it's really great, like being able to process some things like um, with Dr. Barucki and some of her courses. So I know you've been doing some of this with your students. Um, and maybe this is a hard segue, but uh, jump in and, and fill, fill us in a little bit on, on what you've been experiencing with your students this um, these last few months. And we may have okay, to go well, back a bit. Yeah. Yeah. I've already, as you were talking, gosh, there's, we could do a whole podcast on the, the centennial steps, couldn't we? You mentioned yeah. that. That's where you met. Totally. A certain beloved person in your yes, life. Yes, I did, and I, I, I don't think I can tell the full details of this this particular story because I, I would probably get in trouble uh, from a variety of people. But I did meet I did meet my um, my wife on the steps at, of going up to Centennial. <laughs> oh, that sounds so boring. Oh, uh, I used I to be on, <laughs> I used to be on my way up to practice the organ, and so I hardly ever went to Joe Barecki's. Uh, baseball games, but if I would stand on those steps and he would be at first base, and remember that's where the athletic field was, and yeah. first base had a direct line to see, mm -hmm. he would take, he was left handed, is continues to be left handed, he would wave his mitt at me from first base oh. to let me know that he saw me and also that he forgave me for not watching his game and I'm going up to practice the organ. We could do a whole thing on the centennial steps and it makes me wonder, I didn't ask this, Dust, what are the significant geographical spots mm. at Concordia yeah. that has a significant memory? And I don't know if the students now have something like that, like the centennial mm. steps. We had the chapel, we had the centennial steps. And I would be interested to, to know the answer to that question. And now I promise we can we can talk about these students now. Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, for us, they're pro we de we can definitely name some more. I've got a couple others in mind as well. I'm sure you do too. But for yeah. current students, I don't know. Yeah. yeah, I don't know either. Okay, students, can I tell you about the Gen Zoomers? Because you don't know anything about them. <laughs> to fill you in, Dad. <laughs> I live with them. <laughs> I've got two. <laughs> and you tell me if you find this to be true. Okay, first of all, just um, generic background, and I admit that I am beholden to James Emery White, who wrote a book called Meet Generation Z. Uh -huh. They were called the Zoomers before Zoom meeting ever started wow. two months ago. So, um because they have many similarities with the boomers. That's that's why they were uh, termed the Zoomers. First thing you need to know, in my Faith for Life class this spring, I had 26 students and 14 of them were nursing students. So mm -hmm. there's one marker that they are 
already, when they come to college, they're not taking liberal arts classes and deciding what they want to do with their life. They're already on a track. So right. early on, they are predisposed. They 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 are encouraged. They are the most tested cohort. And it's, you know, you are to be productive and what are you going to do yeah. with your life? And I have sophomores who, who are already in the nursing program. And interestingly enough, in my class, the oldest I think was 27 and the youngest would have been 20. So that's huge. But they were mostly Gen Zers. So mm -hmm. tell me if you resonate with this. They've been born after 1995. Is that true? Yeah, I Your think kids so. Born? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, almost all my students were born after 1995. Uh, they ask big questions. They're not just cerebral. They're not just intellectual, but they care about being close to home, real life, and they do ask hard questions. They would ask me uh, every semester I gave them two weeks to ask any question they wanted. Nothing is off limits. Ask any question. And the one question that came up every single time was, number one, is there a hell? And what is hell like? And who's mm -hmm. going to hell? Can you see how I, I resonate with that? Because that was my big yeah. question. Oh, here, yeah. let me give you a chick tract. Yeah. <laughs> I'll Just tell you exactly that. who's going to hell. <laughs> and number two, why do I feel so lonely in a crowd? that this is one of the loneliest generations and it's a paradox they are the most uh wi-fi hooked they can't remember before smartphones yeah. but they in spite of being in social media with a twitter account and it, yeah. I, I can't even name them all but they have them all they yeah. feel so lonely you and, they actually asked that question i mean really why do i feel so lonely in a crowd Yes, I give uh, three by five cards, and you can yeah. ask them anonymously. You can ask yeah. anything out loud, but okay. two of the okay. consistent questions. Yeah, why do I feel so lonely in a crowd? Hmm. Mm -hmm. Powerful. Do you think yeah. that that, do you see some similarities with the um, Gen Zers mm -hmm. that you know? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, this would not be true of your family members, but they are completely biblically illiterate. Mm -hmm. The people in my classes, and you know, we, we want to say all the great things about Concordia, which is true, but at the same time, the students in my classes have no memory of Christianity. They weren't even nominal Christians. They've never been to an Easter service. If I ask them uh, whether St. Paul is in the Old Testament or New Testament, they would ask me, what is a testament? Yep. And they got into Faith for Life, Many of them, they had not taken Old Testament or New Testament because they were transfer students. And so they would come in and they were given credit for a world religions course or a sociology of religious thought or whatever. And they literally know nothing about them. Mm -hmm. They barely know that Easter is about some sort of Jesus coming, being yeah. resurrected from the grave, <laughs> maybe ascended from the grave. So they are biblically illiterate. Um, they are post-recession. They see the world as broken. You don't need to convince them that they're sinful. You don't need to convince them that they yeah. uh, are in a broken world. Yeah, they get that and part big time. Mm -hmm. Especially there is so much anxiety, and I've been thinking about this. Dust, I ache for your daughters. This, mm. the, the women in my class are so bombarded with images of what it means to be a woman, and it's so heavily emphasized that you have to be beautiful on their mm. Facebook, on their Twitter, yeah. uh, the images, everything. 
guys especially have to be productive. Women need to be beautiful and productive. Hmm. Yeah, there's yeah. a lot. There's a lot of messaging that goes on now, and it's everywhere. It's not like you can necessarily get away from it. Um, so it's all around us. We sort of are just swimming in it without knowing it. Um, you said something that that really resonated to me, and that's the children. The, the children of the Great Recession, which means, you know, there's some outcomes of that. Uh, one of them, I think, is that they're super practical. You know, I mean, liberal arts, yay! But really, we're going to go become nurses. You know, I see that both of my um, daughters are going into the healthcare fields. Um, it's challenging, but uh, it also means that they they know that when they're done with their education, they will have work on the other side. Mm -hmm. um, Which is so important. It's yeah. very important. And it doesn't mean that they don't care about um, the humanities or, you know, poetry or music or any of the anything that, in fact, they love having great, deep, thoughtful conversations in reading. Um, but there's just a difference. And I'm speaking now of a, of a whole generation like you are. So Gen Z, it seems to be one of the stereotypes, but it's a legitimate kind of view of them that they're very practically oriented. And um, yeah. partly because they all grew up during a time when, you know, they for them, their experience is very limited. It was a pretty major recession. It went on for years. So that marks them too, that scarcity, yeah. the anxiety and the scarcity, their experience mm -hmm. of life is having stuff taken away from them. Mm -hmm. That sense of loss, even as just kids. Uh, so without being I, a, without being too much of a downer though, give us, give us something that's, that's just so powerful, impactful about their presence in your life. Yes, because they are survivors. They yeah. are, they are world changers. They are entrepreneurial. Mm -hmm. And because they are biblically illiterate, they don't have baggage, even from <laughs> mostly from two years ago. So we can talk about anything. I, we can mm -hmm. talk about religion. There are all sorts of uh, religions represented in my classes, Muslims, Hindus, I've, yeah. I, you name it, I've had it, Christians. And there's somehow an even playing field. It wasn't just Christians and atheists. When you have the whole thing, you can the whole gamut of religious outlooks, including the atheists and the agnostics and some Christians. I don't think I had a single Lutheran this term. You can have a conversation and it is not as vested interest. So that's an upside. Mm -hmm. And the other one, they are the world changers. They are survivors. And you're going to see that in their papers. Um, mm -hmm. I, I did not write that one down. That one is um, what the science says. Yeah. They have suffered so much loss. Those who are survivors, they have this positive attitude. And now I want to get to my quiz question for you. Oh, boy. Are you ready? Because <laughs> we're going straight into my last Faith for Life class. Great. Here okay. we go. Dust. What do these people have in common? Martin Luther, you, and all the women in my Faith for Life class. Wow. Uh, what do these people have in common? Martin Luther, you, and all the women in my Faith for Life class. Have had to take a stand? Thank you. I Thank you know. for that answer. Thank you. <laughs> and Look, uh, it's not the answer I was looking for. Mm, I would say don't like the Pope, but I this one is, is all right. <laughs> yeah. 
I had a Catholic in my class. I think she liked the the Pope. So <laughs> thank you. That's a good guess. It's not the it's not uh, the answer I was looking for. Uh, give me a hint. Give me a clue. It's a Lutheran answer. It's a Lutheran answer. Mm. And mm. I barely brought it up in that last podcast, which people will have to go back oh, and listen boy. to. Yeah. <laughs> See, if I had time, I would. And I'd be, uh, do I get to call someone for help? We don't have time no. for that now. No. Um, what do we have in common? Martin Luther, Dust, and all the women all the in your women class. All the women in my class. Um, mm. I'm I'm stumped because I don't know the women in your faith for life class. So I'm trying to make the connection. I'm having a hard time. Mm -hmm. Every one of them, Luther believes, has a right to a higher education mm. and to be trained and taught and has a value based on who they are not on their job in life, not on what they can accomplish, right. not by being a monk, which is a higher calling than the milkmaid. Yep. Every one of them has an intrinsic value and their one job in this life is to figure out what they've been called to do and be in this world with the gifts and the talents. Mm. And Women especially, people forget that in Luther's time, up until Luther, girls didn't go to school. And he was adamant that girls should go to school and that there should be higher education available to all people. Mm -hmm. And that you should be allowed into the university because you are gifted and you are talented and everyone's calling matters, not just those who are in the prestigious hierarchy, the princes, nobility, and the clergy. Right. Powerful. And the thing is that it's the implication of that. And I did talk about that in our last podcast, that if you're not spending all your time trying to know the right doctrines, trying to have a theologically correct treatise, and that's going to get you to heaven, well, what are you supposed to do with your life then? Yeah. Well, you're simply called to be a, a prophet or an encourager to anybody who walks across your path, or to perhaps receive a word of prophecy or receive a word of encouragement from anybody who walks across mm -hmm. your path. And whether you have a great big successful career with lots of money, lots of status, that doesn't matter. What matters is the present moment and the person God put along your path in the present moment, who he might be inviting you into your tribe, into yeah. your community. I mean, there's so many implications of that. And just some of these students, they are there because their parents force them to be there because they want them to be uh, a nurse. And some are there because they are gladly there. Most of them yeah. are, but all of them can resonate with a sense of, I have value, I have passion and talents. And it's much deeper than the world bombarding me with images. I have to be right. thin, I have to be beautiful, I have to earn a lot of money, I have to have strong relationships with the other men. It's all the intrinsic value of a human being. And that's what we spend our whole time on. And I think that's, that's so what cool. came forward. And so I'm hearing you describe, uh, these are my words, so, uh, but you're describing a philosophy that's built on a theology. So it's a way of, a way of knowing ourselves that has a deep, that's rooted deeply in how God feels about us and who we are. That's yes. that's what I hear you describing. 
Yeah. Many of us come with the danger of a single story. We mm -hmm. have somehow soaked up a single story about ourselves. We can or we can't. I had a single story that I was not athletic. And at Concordia, I, I got an A in archery, and that set yeah. me down a path of, I am athletic. <laughs> there, there are so many things about our belief system and mm -hmm. this danger of a single story we, we projected onto other people. Oh, that's another thing. Yeah. This generation hates labels. Oh, you're a woman, so you must be a feminist. Well, right. if you know me, I'm one of the most conservative people I know, or maybe extra medium. I think of myself as extra medium theologian. But uh, we, we're so quick to put people into stereotypes mm. and labels and boxes, and this generation does not care for labels. Um, and there, there is a sense of they, they are they are close to being able to be awakened to the inherent value of who they are in a faith for life class. I didn't see that in previous years. And I see mm -hmm. that in this generation. And I definitely saw it this semester that they were okay, awakening hang on a to second. this. So you okay. said something so interesting. You just said, you said you didn't see it as much in previous generations as in this one. It, what's the difference in your, it, from your perspective? Remind me again the it. What, what was I specifically the talking about? Between this, you said this group of students or this generation is more open or more willing to have that perspective or have that conversation at, compared to the ones that you have taught in previous times. Maybe I'm getting better at teaching. I, I was not as good a teacher five years ago. Um, <laughs> maybe it is... Um, okay, you asked the question two years ago, the horrible year, uh, when the whole LGBTQ plus stuff was going on, mm -hmm. um, the classes were so fraught with emotion, negative energy and fear and anxiety. It was difficult to talk about anything. And I had students come up to me afterwards and they said, professor, I'm a Christian, but I'm not going to say anything in class because you didn't dare mm -hmm. say anything because if you took on a label, you were immediately cons considered, oh, if you're Christian, then that means you believe this, this, this about yep. LGBTQ. If you're, you can't be on the fence, you can't be in a gray area. It was all very polarizing. And that was kind of a demarcation. When we survived that tidal wave, it's been getting better. The, the mood at Concordia has been so much better in the last two years because they were the survivors. And just, I, mm -hmm. you know, I'm just telling you, I'm not saying I'm agreeing with this, but this is a sexually fluid generation. That ship has sailed. Yeah. They, yeah. they, in general, in general, they, it's a non-issue. They don't want to talk about this stuff anymore. It's mm -hmm. just a non-issue. You you are what you are, and they don't want to have that conversation. They want to talk about ultimate questions. Mm -hmm. But for them, uh, those kinds of con conversations that we thought were controversial two years ago, they have settled that in their minds, and they're in a mm -hmm. different headspace and a different emotional space. So all of the LGBTQ stuff, it came to a head two years ago, but it was already brewing, right? Nothing yep. just happens overnight. There was there was stuff going on Correct. and tensions that mounted and mounted. Mm -hmm. And um, those who have survived and who since have transferred in, they come from a generation. When was it? 2015? Wasn't that when the, the law changed that you could marry? 
It's 2015. Mm-hmm. I th- so I think about that. Yeah. Yeah. They were, uh, what, 15 years old then mm-hmm. or whatever. That was formative. And many mm-hmm. of them have moved on. So, you know, you ask the question, what made the difference? That is a big one. They right. may or may not have religious markers. If you're a Christian, you tend to be all in. If you're not, then mm-hmm. you're not. But um, they've made up their minds. And also, I have found that they are willing to listen to each other, even mm-hmm. if they have strong opinions because they are a group that, if I can create a safe space in the classroom, they will be vulnerable enough to actually give their opinions. And even two years ago, you you just didn't, it was not a safe space anywhere. Maybe that's so not I, the answer that you wanted. No, I, no I, but I, hear you just, I hear you describing, you know, that, that there was a, a point of time or a, a season at, at Concordia Portland when um, it just, it was hard and it was, things got really polarized in a variety of ways. Um, and that uh, we're on the other side of that. I also hear you describing really a generation a perspective, a kind of, I, I mean, I, I think of you as you were talking about it as sort of an ethnologist, you know, you're this, you're an instructor, you're in classes with these students um, quite often, you're listening to them you're paying attention to what matters to them and you're describing for us right now in this conversation, what matters to them uh, or what doesn't matter to them, you know, both. And so um, I, and I, I would agree with you. I think, you know, it's important for us to, before we do anything to just sort of tell the truth about um, things. And one of the things we should be telling the truth to one another about is uh, generation Z and sort of their perspective on life and without you know there's individuals who all have different perspectives but as a as a whole um as a tribe if you want to call them that they, they do have um kind of a general perspective and you're you're describing it what you experienced um these last few years and as you were teaching students so yeah i, I get that so on this side of it though you 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 describe a safe place where students can actually share how they what they think how they feel without feeling like they're just going to get crushed um which is cool and then you actually asked their permission to share some of their feedback from some of the papers they wrote in your class i did yeah do you want me to share those now or do you, do you want to talk to me? Maybe I'm not done talking about the students yet because yeah. I feel like there has been a misconception of Concordia students. And mm-hmm. I've had to pull away from social media because, again, if I hear vitriolic, yeah. that danger of a single story that they stereotype students sure. and there's angry, loud voices, well, Concordia closed because yeah. they all went down the tubes because the bad theology teachers, well, you know. <laughs> all this stuff. And, and the sense that, of judging these students that either they're all a bunch of activists out there, you know, trying to foment revolution, or on the other hand, they're coming as blank slates, these little naive people, and it was our job to mm-hmm. write on their little blank slate and mm-hmm. uh, awaken them to the, the true truths, and neither one of those is true. That's, yeah, that's fair, and I would say it's also fair to say that uh, for any of you that are on social media quite a bit, hopefully you know this, that the trolls are typically a whole lot louder than everyone else. And there aren't that many of them. I could be wrong, but uh, Internet trolls who just like to holler and yell and talk about things that they um, don't know anything about because that it's basically gossip. 
Um, there's a whole lot more of them out there. Uh, there's fewer of them, but they're louder. That's what I meant to say. Yeah. And, um, and that's they, one of they our have early an inordinate, Yeah, they have an inordinate, inordinate um, you know, influence sometimes over the conversations that we have. But I would, I would hate for this conversation to be just a, about what people think about Concordia or what we think people think about Concordia. So because we right. really, so, what I really want to get into is the students that you know and your experience with them, which I think is really valid and people do need to hear about. Very good. So. Thank you for leading me down to the next topic. And it. I agree. But it goes back to the danger of a single story. We yes. watched Chimamanda Adichie's TED Talk on the danger of a single mm. story. And then I asked them, and that's the golden thread through this class. Yeah. So I asked them, what is the dangerous single story that people believe about you and that you mm. might have about others in a different tribe? And what they have spent the last 15 weeks on is reflecting on the stories of their life that may be kind of stereotypical or are there a single story is not that it's untrue. It's that it is incomplete. Mm. And so I'm ready. If you would like yeah. to talk about some of these students, shall I just start reading? Yeah, go for it. Okay. And then you can give me feedback. Here is student A. For the last four years, Concordia has been my home. I hope you can see my love for it through my paper. I chose it as my home, not because of the beautiful campus, but because of professors like, okay, me, Dr. Barecki. It is professors like her who have challenged me through intellectual and moral transformation. The person that first step foot onto campus is not the same person writing today. I want to thank every professor, administrator, and board member for having an impact on my life. The transformation that I have experienced is a priceless gift. For many, the announcement of the school's closure and the days that followed felt like the loss and mourning of a loved one. However, through this adversity, many of us have become robust. Being a cavalier now has much deeper meaning. The thousands of people who have attended Concordia since 1905 are part of what we call the Concordia community. Hmm. After the announcement, the community felt much more like a family. This loss brought us all together. Okay, you gotta excuse me, but I'm sort of like, is this for real? <laughs> like, I'm just, I have to ask the question. Okay. okay, this is what I told them. This was, yeah. you know, we had a community service project which went out the window at the closure because mm -hmm. you're not going to get to do any of your projects. So I said, okay, so you're calling, vocation, you, your, your final project is to write a page 10 or less paper, and it's your story. And yeah. I want you to tell the story of being called to Concordia, you're calling at Concordia, and you're calling beyond Concordia. Yeah. And I want you to be real. We practice this. Walter Storff's rule. You can be angry, you can be um, piercing, you need to honor the humanity of the other person. Good. So yeah. you can put anything that you want in your papers, but I ask you to honor the humanity of other people and to remember mm -hmm. this golden thread of your vocation. Mm -hmm. So this is uh, the beginning and the end. And I did have some students who were so angry dust. Yeah. They were just filled. Yeah. Who is who's in? Who's accountable to this? Yeah, yeah. That's why I asked the question because I, I guess yeah. you know my assumption is that all of the students would feel that way, would not be able to get through that first phase of just being angry. 
but I hear I heard in what you just read someone who's in a different place or space. They're not just saying think, that to get a good grade. No. And I told them, yeah, your grade is going to be on form, grammar, mostly. And, you know, <laughs> yeah. And just your English skills. I'm not great. You don't have to say, Jesus Christ is my personal savior. You, you know, yeah, it's yeah. all that. I told you this was an extraordinary class. It was already extraordinary. This was a student who'd been at Concordia all four years, mm. uh, wanted to go to the law student law school, is now going to sit out for a little while and rethink things. Uh, mm -hmm. Very reflective. I had a lot of reflective thinkers in this class. Mm -hmm. And the anger, again, we had a whole month to process before the COVID quarantine. So that anger spilled out into class. There was no more learning that was done. There was no more reading these yep. books and watching movies together. We had conversations. And yeah. what binds you together and moves you forward is shared suffering, food, and laughter. And that shared suffering created right. a sense of community that I think was lost at Concordia in the last couple of mm. decades. Because we were so disparate. We were, yeah. and, and you know, the whole two years ago, that was just so community blasting. But there was something about this shared community. We were there for each other and the students were there for each other. And I think that in their papers, yes, they wanted to put their best foot forward. I had asked them to write their papers, not just for me, but for the board of directors to read and to mm -hmm. offer them an insight of what it was like to be the real student at a real Concordia, not just conjecture what's out there yeah. on social media. So they were writing to somebody beyond me, and they probably wanted to put their best foot forward. But at the same time, I think there was a lot of genuine reflection in the two months that we had before they actually wrote yeah. the story. Oh, actually, but I actually think that the extra audience uh, provides some validity to that perspective. In other words, that student wasn't just writing for you. That student was writing for another group. So why why not be straightforward? Um, so I trust it's it's more trustworthy to me. And I'm I'm just I'm I'm kind of amazed actually. That's very thoughtful, a very thoughtful perspective, considering everything that students have gone through. You said to me um, when we were having a couple conversations, getting ready for these podcasts, I, I just made note of it because I just thought it was uh, such an interesting perspective. You said it is pointless to teach anything without building relationships. Oh, it what is. You, and I learned that the hard yeah. way. Yeah. And what does that mean? Yeah, that critical spirit in me that was going to adhere to 1980 standards and by golly. It means that when a student plagiarizes, which happens all the time, how I mm. treat them is different mm -hmm. than how it used to be. I used to be very legalistic. I took it as an arrow. How dare you betray me by plagiarizing when I've invested so much in myself? And now I realize that it's not about me. So I, I think mm. I started to wonder, what was your question? <laughs> it is pointless to teach anything without building relationships. Yeah, it, you have to build relationships. And so you have yeah. to be able to look at the student in the eye and say, hey, what, what happened here? So this, mm -hmm. I don't say plagiarize. I said, these are, um, these are unacknowledged quotes here. So what's going on? <laughs> so tell me about this. That, that is so hard for me. It is so hard mm. for me. But I, I've learned how to have hard conversations. You can't build a relationship without hard conversations. Yeah. And also being vulnerable in the classroom. I tell them all of my stories about being afraid to go to yoga class. And uh, <laughs> I, you know, I, I tell stories on myself to help them see that I am not there as the sage on the stage, that I'm a guide on the yeah. side, and that 
I consider myself conservative, but my family sees me as the black sheep. And let me tell you yeah. how that works out when I go back to Eastern Washington. Mm. So I I also try to um, never judge them because they are they are at the ready to be judged. And the, the moment you judge them, that that that's the end of the relationship. Yeah. So it's hard because I'm handing out the grades. So I've learned to try to be as explicit as I can and always remind them, you can recuperate from this, you can recuperate this. So it's a whole conglomeration of things, but they bring to the class themselves, I have seen in these last few classes, a sense of both anxiety, but a willingness to be present in the moment and not distracted in somewhere else mm -hmm. and disconnected. Is that making sense? I think so. so. I'm just thinking about uh, the professors that you and I knew before that you've already spoken of um, in the podcast before this one and the influence they had on you. And you said, not sage on the stage, guide on the side. It's fun. That's a great little kind of mnemonic device. It's so, very cool. Um, that move it seems to be one that you've, that's a change that's happened to you. Yeah. Yeah. Because all the information is on the internet. We mm -hmm. didn't have that. I mean, we were at the feet of our professors and there was a built-in authority and respect because of who they were. And we were homogeneous. We were all Lutherans or Christians yeah. built in. That's not true anymore. You have to earn the respect of the students and they don't know you. You don't have a reputation. Michael Thomas had a reputation. Phil Brandt did. Yeah. But you know, an adjunct like me, they didn't know me. Mm -hmm. You have to earn the respect, and you can only earn it is you can only earn it by showing them respect and respecting them, and genuinely liking them, and looking at them through the eyes of Christ, and not through Linda's yeah. critical spirit of <laughs> Are you going to be a problem student? <laughs> so the question yeah. you posed to them in in the papers again was just just highlight that again for me and for the folks that are listening. You ask them Tell to answer questions. Tell us the story. Tell yeah. us the story of being called to Concordia, your calling at Concordia, and your calling beyond yeah. Concordia. Yeah. Good. Give us another one. Yes. This I have five stuff. more. Do we have time? Oh, my goodness. I can Probably read them fast. Then, no. Yeah, not, but, not but give us, give us a, at least one more, maybe even two more. Oh my gosh. Oh golly. Oh golly. No, I'm, um, I'm forcing you. And by the way, while she's, while she's getting the next one ready, she has gotten written permission from her students to share these oh, yes. on this podcast. Um, so, and, and she's not sharing the name, so she's, but she is sharing the substance of, of these papers that they wrote. Okay. So I'm just going to tell you the next one that I'm not going to read. I don't follow rules very well. No, this one I'm not going to be is <laughs> a re returning student who it's a nine year process. She had a baby at the age of 17 mm. and she thought that's it for my college career. But then her life changed and her way of thinking changed and she became a Christian and she came back to school and she was there in the nursing program. Mm. Next one was 27. Again, one of the older students. Um, who, who believed with all his heart, he's not Christian, but that he was at Concordia for a reason. And he, that sense of calling, even though he doesn't have a, a religious anchor, a Christian anchor, they totally resonated with the sense of being called to Concordia. Then another one that I won't read. Um, this one, just because it tugged at my heart. The amount of stress that's been piling on is indescribable. 
However, this has taught me that life can and will throw curveballs at you. I'm still proud to say that I was a student at Concordia University, Portland. I'm going to read you the last two. Okay. Okay. Um, student who, uh, this is not atypical. I didn't, I, this is not atypical. The fall of 2016, I, a first generation Latina, began my college journey with little to no guidance or set expectations, nowhere else than Concordia University, Portland. Being a first generation student in a Latino family has proven to be extremely difficult because of the lack of support caused by a lack of experience regarding college. I'm not able to rely on my parents for questions about navigating loans, navigating classes, help with homework, help understanding a topic, and much more. I don't blame them though. They've done what they could with what they have. I have eight siblings, all older, and they all took paths that led to settling for what's been given in a life full of negative, minimizing circumstances. I wanted to break that cycle. Throughout my entire time at Concordia, I was a commuter student. I had a 30-minute drive to and from campus that could easily turn into our commutes, but it definitely gave me time to reflect and pray about all the stresses of life and give thanks for life. I know I have a long road ahead, probably full of loops because nothing ever comes easily in life, but it is time to figure out my next step. In the end, this will all just be an impactful memory in my life, and this class and these people will all be pillars I am thankful for. God makes no mistakes, and going to Concordia was destined for my life, although I won't graduate from here. I am still thankful for all that I have learned and experienced in a community so bonded. Hmm. What came through to me, what came through to me just as I listened to that is just the effect of listening to a real person tell her story. And that's part of why I'm so thankful that you got their permission to do this. Because uh, for anyone who's listening to this podcast, if you're listening along with us right now, these are real people who are affected by this closure. A real person with a real story. Real people. Yeah. And that's one of the questions I ask is what's the difference between community and tribalism? Hmm. And the, the the glory of faith for life in my class is Babette's feast, where we move from tribalism to community. And we didn't get to do that because you can't hmm. watch a movie on Zoom. It doesn't work. <laughs> and no, it doesn't really. <laughs> <laughs> so even though we missed that, we had a real life learning of of moving from tribalism to community. And, you know, we spent a whole podcast on that. But that thread, you know, the Concordia that we lived through dust, we were, we had community, but we were also kind of tribal. I still left pretty tribal. Mm-hmm. And the, why am I so lonely in a group of people? Well, it's because it, we have so many silos of little tribals. Yeah. Merging, converging, mm-hmm. and to create community it takes so much time, so much work. But the power of suffering together, that was bonding. And that sense of community at Concordia. Mm. You asked me what was, you know, this last semester, 
I saw that emerge again. And it was horrible circumstances. But to mm. see the power of community happen mm-hmm. again with all these disparate people, students. And in my class, they came to every class till the last day, March 13th. I, I lost one student, which I still grieve over. Um, uh, they, they quit coming to class the day after the announcement of the closure. Hmm. They didn't survive that tsunami wave. Yep. But the rest of the students, there is a power in this community that was created through intense suffering of my life plans have just fallen to pieces. And we can't find anybody to blame. And we're not going to be able to bring them to justice. So I've yeah. got to move on because otherwise, you know, we talked about getting a hard heart. And yeah. I, I have one more I still want to share. Are you going to let me do it? Absolutely. Okay. Another student who was in the nursing program. Huh. I would like to thank the school for what they did. I felt like I had changed somehow. I used to view nurses as a doctor's assistant, but after my two years here, I realized that they're the backbone of the medical field. I learned that my professors were human too, of course. I knew that they have a life, but after interacting with them a lot, I realized how much I enjoyed it. Although I'm not religious, I sometimes held my head up to wherever God is and asked him, will these bad times bring me good times? Hmm. I'm hopeful for the future that will bring me. To whoever I'm writing to, just know that I'm not mad at it. <laughs> I'm sorry, Dustin. <laughs> all right. Uh, to whoever I'm writing to. <laughs> I, yeah. this, I had to read 25 of these papers. I was a basket case. Mm. Um, to whoever I'm writing to, just know that I'm not mad or anything. Maybe a little disappointed because of recent events. But I know that for some of you, it's not your fault. And I forgive you for that. I just hope that your future will be as positive as mine. I didn't make it up, Dust. That was what the real paper said. This sense of resilience that comes because of growing up in a broken world and anxiety and scarcity. And it's almost because of it and in the midst of it, the resilience and the tenacity and the hope. I just, I saw it all over and I especially saw it in my students. Mm. They are wonderful students, every one of them. And I wish I could read excerpts from all 25 papers. <laughs> I'm, I'm basically speechless. That was, that was beautiful uh, for so many reasons. Um, and moving for you especially because you've, you've walked with them. So what, and we'll kind of bring our time together to a close here, but I think What's changed in you because you've had a chance to walk with these students these last few months? I I tend to be a pessimist. I don't think I'm optimistic. I think the world is really broken like mm-hmm. they do. But I have hope. And hope is not wishful thinking. Hope is not, oh, I hope I get a good grade from Barecki's class. <laughs> oh, mm-hmm. I, you know, I hope it's not going to rain today. Oh, I hope this quarantine lasts pretty soon. Mm-hmm. Hope is a gift. It's mm. a journey. We talked about that in trauma and hope last year. And I have to credit my mentor, Carla Waterman. There's a magnanimity. What was changed in me? 
I've learned more about magnanimity, greatness of soul, greatness of heart that rises, the opposite of sloth and despair, or thinking that you've already arrived. Yeah. You know, oh, I don't. I've got this. We'll just, you know, we're going to figure this out. And three months from now, it's all going to be good. There's this false, mm-hmm. false hope. And then there's the despair, the the crushing, closing, constricting. But that suffering that grows a person, the suffering that enlarges a person, Ford calls it, they become themselves a diamond. Their wisdom is like a diamond, and they themselves who have gone through great suffering become a diamond. I've seen that. I've seen that a little bit peace in on their stages of faith they've already at least clicked <laughs> checked off stage four they've got they've <laughs> survived a, one of these crises and mm. what has changed for me is a, a hope and i see it radiated within many of the concordia community faculty as well as students and especially in my st- in my students, I saw that they had a hope mm. that was deeper than optimism. Mm. So powerful. Thank you. Um, in a time when it'd be so easy to to do to go the other way, I'm hearing you say that the students you knew, maybe maybe partly because you helped give them the space to voice it, um, but they reacted differently. Um, and I, we all heard it in these these excerpts that you read from their papers. Um, I'm moved. I don't really have a whole lot more to say. I'm I'm just kind of moved. I'm thankful that um, we got to this point where you were able to share some of those excerpts. Um, yeah. How about this? We we've got folks. It, it could be any. I, I'm trying to imagine who might be listening to these two kind of uber longer podcasts. And if they made it to the end of this one, you know, um, I always want to give folks a question to sort of help them take another extra step from this. Um, so what's the question, Linda? She's giving me what's the thumbs up. I can, I can see her on my screen here as we video <laughs> conference together, but you're just listening. So she's ready to go. I'd make a good politician because I'm going to sidestep your question and do my own agenda. Yeah, yeah. Perfect. <laughs> I am I am way emotional and I, I don't think I can sing the school song, but I would mm-hmm. like to read the school song and then I'll give you your question. Okay. Perfect. Out of darkness into the light of God, we have been brought by Christ our Lord. Will you sing with me? Called by his spirit into this fellowship. We work and pray with one accord, living together, serving each other, striving always for harmony. This is our motto, we are Concordia. The cross of Christ is light to me. We talked in the last podcast about there's nothing in the Bible that's extra crucium. The cross of Christ, seeing things through the eyes of the one who's willing to carry a cross 
Mm. So my question is this, called by his spirit into this fellowship. So what's, what's the calling in your life right now? What fellowship? And do you know that nothing is wasted? That's one of my themes that I'm known for, saying over and over again. Mm. You matter. Everything in your life matters. Nothing is wasted. Maybe you were forced to come here to Concordia because <laughs> your parents yeah. wanted you to become a nurse. Whatever it is, do you know that nothing is wasted? Yeah. He does not wish evil on any, but in his hands, evil can be turned into very beautiful things. Friends, thanks for sitting with us and um, for giving your time and your ears and, and hopefully your hearts, too, to this journey. It's not been an easy one for Dr. Barucki and for many of the faculty and staff at Concordia University as the school comes to a close. Um, but we trust that in the hands of the one who turns many dark things into good, that this, too, can be turned into good. We have hope. And light. light. And light. Thanks, Linda. Folks, we'll see you around the next bend in the river, next bend in the road. Until then, <laughs> um, let your light shine. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Dust. You just listened to the Now Leading Podcast, hosted by the Northwest District LCMS. Leadership conversations from a Lutheran point of view for Christian leaders of all kinds. Take a moment after this podcast, and with everything you've just heard in mind, consider at least one action you will take. Then go and make it happen.